0: Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Stirkson, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. So uh, I like in summers over the last few years. I haven't done it every summer, but I like to do like a, a character study. We've done Joseph, we've done Moses, and I realize that so far we've been doing the good guys and. Uh, And, you know, people like Joseph and Moses, I mean, anything you read in those stories is basically, it's good for your kids. It's wholesome, and you want your kids to emulate them. And then there's Samson, okay? And we're going to do Samson, and I don't know how long it'll take me, and and maybe I'll just do three weeks, but maybe I'll I'll keep it going into into August. But guys, if you could just put up that PowerPoint. They made an epic PowerPoint. Is that not good? (laughs) Ryan's like, are you okay with me making this for your PowerPoint background? I'm like, that is epic. Um... I don't know if the message will match up with it, but uh, we're going to do Samson. I think there's lots we can learn from Samson, and uh, it's certainly if you made his story into a movie, it would be far from G-rated. It would be awful, um, and, uh, and yet there it is in the Bible, and I think there's lots we can learn. There's so much we can learn from the Josephs and Moseses of the Bible in terms of what we need to aspire to, and we can be convicted there. And then there's other characters where there's a mix. Is, is Samson a sinner or is he a saint? And, and, and with him, it's more complicated, just like it is for a lot of us, right? Because, I mean, a lot of the story is just gross. Uh, but then there we find him in Hebrews 11, which we'll look at yet at some point in this series. And he's in the hall of faith with Abraham and all the rest. And you just go, how is he there in Hebrews 11 as one of the examples that the author of Hebrews uses as a, as a great man of faith? And so I think there's a lot there we can learn about grace I think there's a lot there we can learn about just imperfection. We can learn from his flaws. We can learn from some of the stuff he did right, which wasn't very much. And today, we're just going to get into the background. I'm not even going to get much into the story of, uh, of Samson himself today. We're just going to look at his birth. We're going to look at the environment he was born into and some of what was happening there. There's, I think, a lot of parallels we can draw there for our own culture and stuff today. But the story, if you want to read ahead over the next couple of weeks as we're going through it, it's Judges chapters uh, 13 through 16. And today we're just going to go uh, through uh, the first chunk of Judges chapter 13. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll read it and we'll get into it. Uh, Father, I just thank you. I thank you so much that you use even very imperfect people. And I thank you even that at the end of his life, Samson, you know, repented there. And even though, you know, a, really a, a, a sordid tale of a story and yet at the end of it, He somehow ends up in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith, and I think that's an encouragement for all of us, Jesus, and I thank you for putting stories like Samson's in the Bible. And uh, I pray that you would speak to us. There's much practical stuff to come in the coming weeks, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us about overcoming, about living righteous, about being godly in a culture that is extremely ungodly, and I thank you, Lord, for how you're going to work in our hearts and in our church this summer. We really do appreciate the summertime. In Jesus' name, amen. So Judges chapter 13, we start the Samson story, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a certain man named man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So this is talking about the birth of Samson here, and there's a couple of things I underline there that I want to notice from this passage. Uh, First of all, Samson was a Nazarite from birth. And of course, then the big question then in our culture today is, you know, what was a Nazarite? And essentially a Nazarite was someone, the Nazarite vow, and I'm going to look at the passage there in Numbers in just a moment, but the Nazarite vow was a vow that people could take who wanted to consecrate themselves to God. It was essentially for people who were not priests. So you know how in Israel they had the Levitical tribe, and these were the priests, these were people who who were, their whole lives were devoted to serving God in the temple and, and that sort of thing. But for the other tribes, what you could do is if you wanted to feel like you were devoting yourself to the Lord is you could take a vow okay? And it was called the Nazarite vow, and it was for a set amount of time. It might be for a couple of months. It might be for a year. It might even be for a couple of years, but usually it would be for like a few months. And it was a vow you could take to say, I am devoting myself to God's service. And you might do it for a variety of reasons. You might do it because you were uh, very thankful for something God had done in your life, or you might do it because you were desperate for God to answer some prayer in your life, sort of like fasting. It was something you would do to devote yourself uh, to the Lord. And essentially the Nazareth vow had three parts. I'm going to read you a passage in just a second. But it had three parts. The Nazareth vow had was first of all, you're not allowed to cut your hair. Uh, second of all, you were not allowed to drink uh, wine or any kind of alcohol. In fact, actually went further than that. A lot of people just think of the not drinking wine. You weren't allowed to eat anything that was grapes, okay? And, uh, and then the last thing was you weren't allowed to touch a dead body. And I just want to show you this. It's going to bring it alive. Uh, some of these details, as we get into the series, this Nazarite thing is really important, and because we don't understand the Nazarite vow, we miss a lot of parts of the Samson story, because there's a bunch of parts in the story, and it's like, why is that in there? For example, and we're not going to get to it today, but in the coming weeks, we'll get to the story about how uh, Samson kills a lion, and then there's honey in there, and it says in the story he doesn't tell his parents about it, and the question is. Why would they include that detail and why would he care about telling his parents about killing a lion? Part of it has to do with the Nazarite vow. The story makes more sense. When you understand the Nazarite vow, what you're going to see is throughout the story, long before Delilah cuts his hair at the end, the famous part where Delilah cuts his hair, Samson has already broken every single one of the Nazarite vows. And so there's lots of details in the story that make more sense once you understand what the Nazarite vow was. And so I'm just going to go to Numbers chapter 6, just to start this series here. And we'll just get this into us a little bit. And then as the series goes on, it'll make more sense. But Numbers chapter 6, verses 2 to 8, tells us about the Nazarite vow. and, And God says this, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not eat any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. And this will come up in the, in the Samson story as well. But one of the things I was thinking is it, I mean, he couldn't even eat raisins. And I think, you know, like, well, no raisins. That's no raisins in your cinnamon buns. That's no raisins in your rice pudding. That's no raisins in your, in your cinnamon raisin toast in the morning. That's a pretty tough vow. But anyway, um, <laughs> at least for me, I, I, I like raisins. A lot of you maybe are disgusted by raisins. But anyway, verse 4. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds of the skins. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. Okay, he shall be holy, which means separate. He shall let the locks of of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord he shall not go near a dead body Not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So, this was a very serious vow. When you took this vow for however long it was, whether it be six months or whether it be a couple months or whether it be a year, that meant if someone, a loved one, died, this is how serious this vow was during that time. I mean, how how would you know, right? But you were not allowed to go near the body because part of the Nazarite vow was you're not going to go near. Uh, a dead body, okay? Now, the thing about Samson you have to understand is so when people took the Nazarite vow, they're in numbers, and in the Old Testament, it was always for a set period of time, usually just of months, okay? Um, but in Samson's case, Samson is being dedicated by God at the beginning of his life. He's going to be a Nazarite for life. So that's a pretty extreme life. There's only three people in the Bible who were dedicated at birth to be Nazarites for life, okay? One is Samson. Uh, one is the prophet Samuel, who comes in the very next book after Judges, and then one in the New Testament is John the Baptist, okay? So these were, all three were radical men, uh, all three uh, kind of wild men, and, uh, and, uh, and that's interesting to me. Another thing I find interesting, again, I'm just giving some details here, background to the story. Another thing I find interesting in the story is that in all three cases, if you look at all three of the men in Scripture, John the Baptist, uh, Samson, and Samuel, who were Nazarites for life, who were dedicated at the beginning of their life for their whole life to be Nazarites, which is a really extreme kind of life, a really extreme kind of separated uh, life. In all three cases, it's interesting to me that they get born to barren mothers, and I don't think that's an accident, okay? God doesn't come to a, you know, a big happy family, a mom with, you know, five or six kids and say, uh, here, now you're going to have Samson, he's going to be a Nazarite for life. He goes to a barren woman, okay? Same thing with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Jesus does not come to, you know, Elizabeth, who's already got a whole bunch of kids and a happy life. He comes to a woman who's disappointed in life. She's barren, and he says, you're going to have John the Baptist, and it's the same with Samuel. So, in all three cases of the Nazarite, uh, you know, for life dedication, it's always with barren woman. You say, well, why is that? There's something there. I don't know all the purposes of God, but I think, there's, I think there's a couple things that we can, we can conclude. I don't know all the reasons why God would do it that way. But I think, first of all, one of the things is there's something to... to, to there are certain callings in the kingdom of God. Like you think of how John the Baptist's calling. You think of Samson's calling. You think of the prophet Samuel's calling. There are some things that, for the kingdom of God that can only be birthed in an environment of disappointment and pain. There's something about, uh, you know, that the, the barren woman... The disappointment that she goes through for many, many years, the pain, all that stuff. And, and, and in the Bible, it's very clear. Hannah, uh, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, and Manoah's wife here, we don't know as much about. But in all, in all those cases, they suffered many years of, in that culture, a lot of shame, first of all. But a lot of disappointment. And there's something about that lengthy period of disappointment and pain which is necessary for certain things to be birthed into the kingdom of God. And uh, as I was thinking about it, I was praying about it, Lord. I was, I was like, Lord, this is just such, to me, I'd never noticed this, this point before. And I think there's an important thing that God wants to say to all of us here, but I think he wants to also say it even to some couples, because we have couples here in our church, and, and they want to have kids. You, you're here today, and every Mother's Day is painful for you, and every Father's Day is like torture for you, because you wish you could have kids. It feels like everybody else has kids, but you don't have kids. But one of the things I want you to know is, first of all, God sees your pain And even if he's not in the end going to give you uh, uh, kids that way, he sees and hears your pain. But the second thing is, if you will let him, if you will not give up on him, if you will not get bitter at him, but if you will continue to pursue him and rely on him, and you can talk to him about that, it matters to him. Throughout scripture, whenever we see the barren woman, God really cares about these people. He really loves them. But if you will, if you will, if you will just re- rely on him and have faith in him and not give up on him, there's purpose. There is something he wants to do through the pain that cannot be birthed for his kingdom any other way. That cannot be birthed through the woman who has a bunch of kids and it was easy and she's happy. There are certain things that cannot be birthed into the kingdom of God through that that can only be birthed through the disappointment and the pain of that. And so some of these unique callings, some of these unique men had to come through a a barren woman, all right? And so I thought that was an encouraging point that God wants to speak to some of you today. But then there's something else, and this is where I want to park for the rest of this message. Uh, I want you to notice something in this passage. As we go back here to the Samson thing, I want to point out to you something here that isn't there. And in in the future weeks of this series, we're going to get more into the practicalities of Samson's life itself. But we first have to just get an environment What was he called into? Because once we see the environment he was called into, we're going to see a lot of parallels with the culture we're living in today. And so in this story, there's there's actually something that the the writer of the book of Judges, it's, it's highlighted for us, it's glaring for us, because it's not in this story, but most of us as North Americans miss it. And so before I tell you what's missing in the Samson story, I first have to explain to you that there is a formula to the book of Judges. Okay? The book of Judges follows a very specific formula. It gets repeated over and over and over again from the beginning to the end of the book, okay? And basically, the formula of Judges, there's four parts to the formula of Judges, and like I said, it just gets repeated over and over again. And here's how the formula of Judges goes. First of all, the people will sin, okay? That's the first step of the formula. This gets repeated a whole bunch of times throughout the book of Judges. Second of all, in response to the people uh, forgetting about God and going into sin and compromising all this sort of stuff, God sends oppressors to the Israelites to get their attention. Okay? The third step of the formula is the people then turn back to God as a result of their oppression. They turn back to God and they cry out to Him. And the fourth step of the formula, which gets repeated over and over and over again, exactly in this order throughout the book of Judges, is that then God hears their cry raises up a judge, hence it's called the book of Judges, and who will deliver them from their oppressors. That's the four-step formula of Judges. The people sin, God sends an oppressor to get their attention, the people turn back to God and cry out to him, God raises up a judge and delivers them from their oppressor, okay? I'll just show you a couple of examples. It happens over and over again uh, with a couple other Judges. If we go back to Judges 3, the very beginning of the book where the Judges start... Uh, It says this in verse 7, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You will see that line over and over again throughout the book of Judges. That's part one of the formula. Okay? We keep going. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asheroth. Therefore, the anger anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan, Rishathiam, eight years. So there's the second part. First part, people forget about God, they start sinning. Second part, God sends an oppressor to get their attention, okay? Third part of the formula, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and again, you will see these exact lines over and over again throughout the book of Judges, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, okay, next verse we get part four, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Okay? And this happens over and over again in the book of Judges. In fact, I'll just go the very next verses, two verses later in the same chapter I just read to you. I'll just show you the formula again because I want you to get this as you're reading through the book of Judges. It'll help you to start to make sense of what the writer is trying to get across. There's a point he's making, okay? If we just go a couple of verses later, same chapter, right after Othniel, the very next judge, we see the formula there right away again. Verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Bit of a, uh, bit of a broken record here, right? So there's part one of the formula. And then part two, very, you know, we keep going the sentence. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So there's part two. Part one, they sin. Part two, God sends an oppressor. Okay? Part three, next verse. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Broken record. And what does God in his grace do? Is he upset with them? You know, oh, how many times do I have to tell you? I'm finished with you. No, every time. He's so merciful. Every time. They sin again and again. He gets their attention. They cry out to him. Hey, hey, I'm happy to answer. He goes, part four, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. (laughs) Interesting that that's in there. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And that's actually a great story. That's the one where he buries a knife into the fat king's flab and it stays there and you can't even see it. But anyway, (laughs) the book of Judges is really a great book. I put, I, I gave my daughter Joy uh, last year so she would have been like eight. I gave her a read through the Bible plan. I went through Judges and a lot of people like, you know what, just because it's in a Bible doesn't mean your six-year-old should be reading it. So just, you know, like some people, hey, it's in the Bible. It's good. Have you read the Bible? I went through the book of Judges and I specifically picked through it and some of these stories were left out for now. Once she's 10, I'll, I'll, I'll give her the full deal. But anyway, this is the formula that happens over and over again throughout the book of Judges until we get to Samson. Okay, there's 13, there's, I was about to say 13 Samsons in the book of Judges. No, no. there's 13 Judges in the book of, of Judges and Samson is the last one. And as you go through the Judges, Things are deteriorating further and further and further. You'll notice we looked at these formulas just now. The first two judges, Othniel and Eglon. And you'll notice that when they go into oppression the first time, it only lasts eight years. When they go into oppression the second time, it lasts 18 years. You're going to find things um, deteriorating more and more and more. They're in oppression longer and longer and longer because their sinning is worse and worse. And when we finally get to the last of the 13 judges in the book of Judges, which is Samson, we find that things have deteriorated so far that the, the formula for the first time breaks down. So I'm going to read you again those first six verses that I read you before, but we're going to look at the, at the formula here because there's the four parts we've been seeing in the formula. People sin, God sends an oppressor, people cry out, God raises up a deliverer. We're going to see that the formula messes up when we finally get to Samson. And so here we go. Verse one, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay? There's part one. Okay. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. Now notice again, the oppression gets longer and longer and longer as you go along in the book, because the people are just—it's deteriorating further and further. Okay, so there's part two of the formula. Okay, now we go to verse two. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, "You shall conceive and bear a son." No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, there's part four. God's raising up a judge to save them, but I want you to notice that there's no part three. We're missing a key part of the formula, which is in all the rest of the book of Judges, which is the people sin. God sends an oppressor. The people cry out. They turn back to God. They, it's, they're repenting. They're praying to him for help, and then he sends a deliverer. Here in the Samson story, we have the first breakdown of the formula. The people sin. God sends an oppressor to get their attention. These people have deteriorated so far from God now. They're so blind. They're so apathetic. They don't cry out to God. God skips the step four, he, and, he begins to, and he raises up a judge anyway, but the people don't cry out. Okay? Now you say, well, what's the moral of that story? Okay, is the moral of that story, who cares? People need to cry out to God because he's just going to save us anyway, right? So, you know, we sin, God sends an oppressor. Well, whether you cry out or not, it doesn't really matter. He's going to go to step four. He's going to rescue you. Is that the moral of the story? It doesn't matter if we pray or not. But I want you to notice there's another change in the formula here. I want you to notice the word begin there that's underlined there. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. In all the rest of the judges, so Samson is the thirteenth out of thirteen, in all the rest of the judges, when God raises up a judge, he actually succeeds in delivering the people from their oppressors. So they have an oppressor from Moab, they have an oppressor from Ammon, Amalekah, whatever, whoever the oppressor happens to be, 8, 18, 20, 40 years, whatever it is, God will raise up a judge. When the people cry out, God raises up a judge and he delivers them, but in Samson's case, the people do not cry out to God, even in their oppression even in their desperation, they are now so, they have slid so far from God that they do not cry out to him, whether because of blindness, apathy, self-deception, some some combination of the above. And now God in his mercy still raises up a deliverer, but it's not really a deliverer, it's sort of a partial deliverance. He raises up Samson, and Samson isn't ever going to be able to deliver them from the, from the Philistines. He himself isn't going to be able to deliver himself from his own bondages. He's a reflection of the people, and in the end, he's going to give them some temporary relief, but he will not bring deliverance from them. He will only begin to deliver them. And the reason for this, again, is as I said, the people have now slid so far from God that even when they're in bondage, they don't cry out to him. And you know things have gotten really bad when God's people don't cry out to him, even in trouble. I mean, we we all get it. And even in the Bible, we see this. in In, uh, in uh, I think it's Exodus. God says, when the people of Israel are going into the promised land, He says, "Be careful when things are good that you don't forget about Me." And isn't that true? We all know about that. We all know it's possible for us, as God's people, it's very easy for us to forget about God when things are good. But you know, things are bad when God's people are, have in desperate times and they're in trouble and they still are forgetting about God and they still aren't turning to God, that's when you know there's real trouble. Because usually it's when things are bad, that's when it's easy to turn to God, right? I mean, that's one of the big reasons why God allows trouble into our lives in the first place. One of the big reasons why God allows suffering and allows pain into our lives is because he knows that pain makes it easier for us to focus on him. Pain is what drives us back to him. "Oh God, we forgot about you when the times are good, but now we're in trouble. Would you please help us?" And He actually loves to help us. So one of the reasons why God sends suffering and pain our way is to get our attention. So we're in a very dangerous place, as God, God's people are in a very dangerous place, when we slide to a point where even bad things can't get our attention, when even bad things can't get our attention then that's a dangerous place to be because what else could get you turning back to God? If bad things, if suffering and pain can't get you crying out to God, what will? Do you see what I, do you see what I mean? Do you see where God, the place that God gets put in? I mean, if even bad things won't get them turning to me, what else can I do? It's almost like they've gotten to a point of return. They're spiritually dead. And from that point on, it's almost like God has to bring judgment. When God's people get to that point where even bad things don't make them cry out to him, when we get to a point in our lives, when a Christian church as a whole in a place, in a country, in a culture, gets to a place where even bad things can't make the people of God turn back to him and cry out to him, it's, it's such a dangerous place because it just means what else can God do but judge? Judge. What else can he do but judge? What else can he do but start over? We see this in Amos four. This is actually a, a a common theme in Scripture. Amos chapter four verse six. God says this. This this is the frustration of God's heart. I gave you cleanness of teeth. That means you don't have much to eat. You have to brush your teeth very often if you're not eating. Okay. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me. God's frustrated. I I mean, you guys forgot about me and the blessings, so I thought, I'll give them some trouble because then they'll turn back to me. They said, I gave you cleanness of teeth and lack of bread in your cities, yet you did not return to me. So he says, well, I gotta push it a little further. So he says in verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me. So God says, I, I played with the weather, I played with the economy, I played with the food supply, and you still didn't return to me. So what am I going to do? I got to turn up the pain a bit more because the most important thing in this life is, what is our relationship to God? That's what matters for all of eternity. God's not being bad in doing this. This is out of his love for us. So he says, I, I messed, I tinkered with the economy, I tinkered with the food supply, you still didn't return to me. I tinkered with the weather. You still didn't get it. You're so blind. You're so apathetic. You still did not turn to me. So he keeps going. So now he sends increasing natural disasters to affect the food supply and standard of living. Verse 9: I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. So he keeps going. He turns it up a notch again. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. So He says, I'm even going to allow diseases, exotic diseases and viruses to come in among the people because at some point, how am I going to get your attention? By the way, as you read through Amos 4, doesn't it almost kind of feel like you're reading a bit of our news today? Crazy weather, economic upheaval, bizarre diseases and viruses, but still they're not turning back. He says, I have to go further. I killed your young men with the sword, and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. So I, I, I didn't want to go there, I, I wanted to just get you on the first one, I wanted to give you a little tap on the bum, a little bit of cleanness of teeth, come back to me. No, it didn't work, I got up, a little bit of crazy weather, even some diseases, he doesn't want to, he's just very Progressive. He's, he's moving through, but he's trying. He says, eternity is at stake here. Will my people come back to me? And finally, he says, I, I, it, war and violence, terrorism, that's what I've, got to go that way. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, finally he says, what's left? And that's, that's why I said before, it's a danger point. When the people of God, it's one thing when the people of God forget about God in the good times, that's sad enough. I mean, he's so good. He's such a loving father. That's sad enough when we forget about God in the good times. But when in his mercy, when we forget about him in the good times, he sends pain and suffering a little bit and he starts with little bits and he's trying to draw the people of God back. He's trying to draw his people back to say, when are you going to just come back and cry out to me? Oh God, sorry, we forgot about you. We really need you now. Oh, I'm so happy to have you back. But when he tries that over and over and over again and the people of God are so stone cold to him and so blind that they cannot even see he's trying to get their attention. Finally, he says, well, there's nothing more I can do. I've sent everything your way I can possibly send to you. The only thing left is severe judgment. And so he says this, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, verse 12, this I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God. That's not a good meeting. You know, sometimes we sometimes we sing and says, Oh God, you know, we want to meet you, want to be with you. And but when it's judgment, like this is not a happy thing, it's prepare to meet your God, O Israel. You're now in deep trouble. I'm about to do something very disastrous. Now judgment comes. I've tried to get your attention with suffering. I've tried to get your attention with pain. But you're not turning back to me. You say, and of course, this is what we always say when we read the Old Testament, right? We're it's like, well, how could these people be so stupid and not see it? Right? Like, come on. I mean famine? Obviously that's God. You know? Economic stuff, that's clearly because when we read the Bible, we're reading it as the Bible. So obviously everything is from God. And God is up to stuff and he's trying to pull his people back. So it's very obvious. We read Amos 4 and we read the Samson story and we go, How are these people so stupid? That they can't see that when this happens, that's God, and when this happens, that's God, and when this happens, that's God, and when this happens, that's God, how can they not see it? But the thing is, we're no different than them. Before we think about how stupid they are, how about we look in the mirror? Because like I said, you read Amos chapter 4, and it looks like, if you look at our news over the last 14, 15 years, Amos 4, like, basically summarizes CNN and CBC and all the other big news networks for the last 15 years. We see wild crazy viruses. We see mega droughts. I mean my, my parents, uh, well, we were even in California there uh, last year just for a little bit for a week, and all they're talking about there is this mega drought, and it's a hugely affecting the crops, and California is really important for, for a lot of the different foods and stuff that we eat here in North America. And, you read, you know, if you just take a cross-section of the last month, I've seen a bunch of articles, secular people, non-believers, who are predicting some kind of a massive economic crash. We've seen a number of those over the last number of years. Terrorism, war, that's, that's everything in our news. But we read Amos 4 and go, how could the people be so stupid? How could they not turn back to God? How could they not see God's trying to get their attention? How could they not be falling on their knees and saying, God, help us? We look around the church in North America, and we're doing the exact same thing. Where people fall on their knees to call out to God for help. It's happening almost nowhere. It's actually sad. The more we do church renewal, what we're finding is as we talk to more and more of these churches, the vast majority of churches in our country don't even have prayer meetings. Aside from, they might have like some little seniors group five or six people I get together to pray, but we're talking about where the whole church or a chunk of the church and all the leaders get together to pray regularly. The vast majority, you just think, how could a church not pray? The vast majority of churches in this country actually don't pray. We're no different than Amos chapter four. We're no different than the people in Samson's time. See, there's a place that the people of God can get where they slide so far from him that they can't see that the bad things are actually God trying to get their attention, and they're so cold-hearted that in many ways they just don't even care. I know one of the objections, of course, that some people have, and this is part of the blindness, is that some of you might be sitting there today and you're going, well, yeah, God God did that stuff in the Old Testament to get people's attention. He doesn't do that now. You know, God, God used famine and economic disaster and war to get people's attention in the Old Testament. He doesn't use those things now. Which, of course, raises the first question, which is, if God's not doing it now, who is? Because it's still there. And a lot of Christians, in trying to defend God, want to make him say he's not in control of things anymore. So they want to say, well, it must be someone else. But let me tell you something. If God's not in control of the world today and all these bad things are happening, this world is a lot more scarier than if he is in control. Because if God's not, if this stuff is happening outside of God's control right now, I'm scared because is this actually going to turn out for good? But if all of this is still within within the sovereignty of God, not that he wants these bad things to happen, but if all of this is still part of his plan that he foresees and that he is using, then it can all be turned for good and and we can trust in those promises that we will not ultimately be harmed because he is still sovereign. But people have this idea that somehow God got less sovereign from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The Old Testament... He was in charge of everything, and then after Jesus died on the cross, he got kind of tired after thousands of years of being in charge of everything, and so he kind of just pulled back, and now the devil's in charge of stuff. And you know what? People, actually, a lot of Christians just think that way. It's not like they would even say it quite that clearly, but we think that way, that somehow God was sovereign in the Old Testament. He's not as sovereign in the New Testament, but actually that is completely unbiblical. You will not find a verse anywhere in the New Testament, anywhere, anywhere that says that God somewhere lost his sovereignty from the old to the new. If he was sovereign over bad things in the Old Testament, he's still sovereign in the new. In fact, the New Testament has a very strong opinion about the sovereignty of God. I just want to show you three verses, but I could take you through the entire New Testament and show you that the New Testament authors had an extremely high view of the sovereignty of God. And let's just start with Jesus uh, because he is God. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Speaking about apart from God's will. Okay, let me, let me just, let's just think about that for a moment. This is Jesus talking. He says, you know those little sparrows in your backyard? I got a little birdhouse in my backyard. I got sparrows in there all the time. And um, one of our neighbor's cats was trying to kill them the other day. I just, was not happy about that. But anyway, that's another story. And, uh, but you got these little sparrows and they're everywhere. I mean, they're, they're just They're everywhere. And Jesus says, not one of them dies apart from it being part of the plan of the Father. Okay, that is a stunning statement about the sovereignty of God. Now, you want to tell me, you want to argue to me on the one hand that he's so sovereign that even a sparrow doesn't die apart from it being his plan, and then you want to say that the stock market and terrorism are outside of his sovereignty? That's insane. He's sovereign over sparrows, but he's not sovereign over major human events. This is the most incredible statement about the sovereignty of God, you'll find almost anywhere in Scripture. If he's sovereign, he's sovereign right down to the minor details. Never mind the big things on the news. How about Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3? He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, if Jesus at any moment forgot about us or forgot to keep the universe tied together it would just blow apart and we would cease to exist. That's his sovereignty. There is no existence apart from him moment by moment saying, I wish everything to continue existing. That is an, that's a stunning statement of sovereignty of God. And last one here. Let's look at Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. This is New Testament. This is New Testament. Being Lord of heaven and earth. Do you know what the word Lord means? It means boss it means master. Paul in the New Testament says that he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is master right now, today. That doesn't mean he likes everything that's happening. He hates sin. It doesn't mean that he's doing sinful things, but it means that he knows everything that's coming, and in his his plan, only things that he allows to happen will happen, and only things that he can turn for good. He's Lord of heaven and earth. Now, he keeps going. Does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The word everything means everything. Everything we have is from him. He even gives us life and breath. We sit in our seats today. I stand up here. We breathe in, we breathe out. We breathe in, we breathe out. He says, Paul says, it's ultimately from God. It's a sign of his sovereignty. Right now, the fact that you are alive is because is just a sign that God loves you because he's keeping you alive. That's his sovereignty. So you want to say god's sovereign over my breath he's sovereign over the sparrows he's sovereign over the universe but he's not sovereign over crashes in the market and terrorism and war that's nuts he's sovereign over all of it which means he's just as sovereign today as he was in the old testament which means that if he used famine and war and terrorism and upheaval in those days to get his people's attention you better believe he's using those same things for those same reasons today. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. But we read these things in the news, and, you know, different people, different reaction, but a lot of the saddest thing is a lot of Christians just can't see what's happening. So long as it doesn't affect our economic well being, we're okay with it. Well, that's no big deal. You know, I mean, that's a big decision about marriage and. Morality, but you know what? I still get to go to work every day. My house is still there. I still have electricity. I can still watch movies on my DVD and TV. So I'm really not that concerned about it. That is exactly what was happening in Samson's day, except for the DVD part. (laughs) Like, how could they be so stupid? 40 years of bondage to the Philistines and they won't cry out to God. How evil is that? The book of Amos prophet famine war economic upheaval how is it that they don't turn back to god how deaf are these people how spiritually dead are these people and we come to today we're living in the exact same times and yet the people of god are going about their business trying to be happy and planning their vacations and there's nothing wrong with all that sort of stuff but we're just living life closing our eyes. Don't talk to me about the bad news. And there's no crying out to God. And ultimately, what we see in a Samson story is a warning. Because God didn't. The other judges got so much God's grace. The people sin. God gets their attention. They cry out to him. He rescues them. But in Samson's story, he doesn't rescue them. I mean, a little bit. He gives them temporary relief. But if you read the last five chapters of Judges after Samson, he doesn't raise up any more Judges for them. And the last five chapters of Judges, if you think the first 16 chapters of Judges are bad, the last five are the saddest, grossest, some of the worst stuff you can read. I mean, it just descends into utter chaos. There's no more moral leadership. There's no more godly leadership. See, here's one of the things. When the people of God don't cry out, God gives them the leaders they deserve. You read the last five chapters of Leviticus, I mean uh, Judges, And what you find is the priests, who were like the the equivalent of kind of like the pastors of today, they were supposed to be the leaders, leading people to God. The priests go into utter deception. Nobody knows right and wrong. There's sexual immorality, horrendous among God's people. And the book of Judges ends on just a horrible note. Because what happens is God just abandons his people. He says, okay, you don't even care enough to cry out to me. I'm going to abandon you. To your immorality and your ignorance now that's scary we don't want to get to a point in this country where God says the Christian Church in Canada actually doesn't even care enough to have me rescue them and then just abandon our nation to rush headlong into our immorality and our ignorance that's a bad bad place to be there's a sad verse in Ezekiel 22 because all God is looking for is someone who will care. He's just looking for a remnant of godly people. Ezekiel 22, verse 30, and I sought, this is God's heart, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me in the land. There's a picture of prayer, and intercession. I'm just looking for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. He says, God says, I don't want to destroy the nation. I don't want to destroy it. So please, there's got to be someone redeemable out of all my people here. There's got to be someone who cares more than just their personal comfort, who actually wants to change. If I could just find a small group of people who would be willing to change, who would just call out to me, I would come in and I would rescue them. But he can't find anyone. Nobody, even his people, don't want change. So God says, I can't work with people who are like that. So verse 31, therefore... I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. I mean, even, even Lot. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Lot? Lot's not a huge, huge hero in the, in the story of Genesis. But even Lot, we find in the in, in, in book of 2 Peter, even Lot was distressed and cried out to God because of the sin that was all around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. If we look at this in 2 Peter 2, verse 7 to 8, And if he, that's God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Okay? I I wonder how many of God's people today in Canada, we're living in a culture very similar. How many of us are greatly distressed? Here's Lot. He wasn't even a great hero in the Bible. He lived in Sodom, which was a culture very similar to what our culture is becoming today. Defined by sexual immorality, sexual freedom. And even Lot, in the middle of that culture, who was not a huge hero in the Bible, but he was a godly man, and the sign of his godliness was that he was distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their, right, or over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That is actually a sign that you were walking with the Lord. Sometimes we don't know what to do. It's like, well, what am I going to do about it? One of the signs that the Holy Spirit is at work in you is that you're at least bothered. And a lot of Christians say there's so much confusion. You know, what do we do? How do we respond to all the stuff that's going on around us? Well, let me just, I just want to talk you through a couple of points. How do we respond? How do we not respond? How do we respond? Because sometimes it's just like we just feel like fatalistic. Well, what can we do about it, right? Well, there's a few things not to do, and there's something that we should do. But how do we respond to the evil that's going on all around us? One extreme is that, that we should not do is the ranters. This has been my mistake in the past is you get so bothered by what's going on around you. you just, you're just angry and you're just ranting about it. And of course, there's a place for righteous anger. But I want you to notice in the Lot story that Lot wasn't ranting and angry. He was distressed. And the appropriate heart place for us to be when we're in the midst of an immoral culture. Well, God says, my people need to cry out to me. The appropriate heart place is distressed. We're not, we're not, you know, losing our minds mad and yelling, we're distressed. And that's actually appropriate. It's actually appropriate for us living in a Sodom and Gomorrah today to feel distress. We should feel some distress over that. And of course, that is an imbalance. But the imbalance here is to move to anger and ranting. I have made that mistake many times in the past and I hope to, to mature from that in the future. But there's a second thing. And of course, then there's a the second group of Christians who are the compromisers. Where in the Bible, where in the Bible does it tell us to show our love for people by supporting sinful choices and decisions? If someone could just show me that after this service, I'd be very grateful. Because John chapter 5 verse 14, Jesus heals a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. You know what he says to him after? Stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Man, that that would be a hate crime today. Okay, he tells the prostitute, you know, I see all these people now, oh, Jesus loved the prostitutes. Hey, man, he loved the prostitutes. We've got to love on them too. And he says to the prostitute in John 8, go and sin no more. Nowhere in here are we told to support sin as a way of loving people. Never, ever, ever. Ranting is not the answer, but compromise is also not the answer. A lot of Christians also go with apathy. There's a third group of people. And again, these are the people, I talked about them a little bit before. Hey, you know, as long as I have a good job, as long as the money's coming in, I'm going to church once a week, who really cares? It's bad news. I just want to be positive. I just want to be positive about things. Was the calling of Samson in his day, was the calling of the people there to be positive? Like maybe let's just be, you know what, guys? We've been in bondage to the Philistines for 40 years. Instead of crying out to God, let's just get positive. You know what? There's some real benefits to being in bondage to the Philistines. For example, they're not the Amorites, so that's something, right? <laughs> you know, let, let's just think positive here. You know what? Why would we cry out to God? Let's make the best of it. Hey, Goliath, come on down for a barbie, okay? <laughs> let's let's just make the best of the bad times. Is that the calling of God? Like, as long as my life is okay, I'm not going to complain too much. Wrong. That's apathy. It's self-deception. I'm okay so long as my little life is comfortable. I'm okay. No, ranting, compromise, apathy, not the calling of Amos 4, of 2 Peter 2, of Judges chapter 13. When we live in a culture that is utterly immoral, that is degrading, we must realize that if at some point the people of God don't turn to Him and cry out, judgment's going to come in one of two ways. Sudden judgment will come in some kind of catastrophic way, or secondly, God will abandon us to our lust and immorality like what happens at the end of Judges, which is its own form of severe judgment. We should be distressed, and so really what we need, the Christian response needs to be to all this immorality and bad news is that we need to respond like Lot did, and out of an appropriate amount of distress and sadness, we need to pray. You know, people are watching us. We're being watched, and to live in times like we live in today, to live in times like Samson lived in, to live in times like the prophet Amos lived in, to live in in times like Lot lived in, more is expected of us as a people of God than in other times it's not enough for us. It's not enough for us to just go about our lives and be comfortable and think that's good enough. In times like now, more is expected of us. We are being watched by the world. We are being watched by other Christians. When you rant, you you give the world reason to accuse and slander us. When you compromise, you actually add momentum. You make it easier for other Christians and churches to compromise. You make it easier for young people to be confused. And to walk away. When you're apathetic, you add to momentum. More is expected of us. We are called to add to a momentum that's pushing in another way, that's pushing God's people to turn back to God and to cry out and to pray. And so we need to, as individuals and as a body, we need to begin pressing into God in prayer. This is not just about daily devotions. This is about beginning to get God's heart about these things. And then when we talk about these issues, we're talking out of a place of prayer. Now we can stand in a place of purity and holiness in the right spirit. Not with compromise, but also not with anger and not with apathy. More is expected of us. Not just of a few leaders, but of all of us. God is calling us to another level of maturity as a body, and that's amazing. In Samson's day, the people of God did not step up to that higher level. They just went with the status quo, and the end was judgment. But it doesn't have to end that way, and I want to end this with this, the story of Lot gives us hope. We'll go back to Samson next week, but that story doesn't end with hope, and I want to end today's message with hope. The story of Lot gives us hope. If we go back to the, to the verse there, it says that God rescued righteous Lot. So, Samson and the people there, there was no crying out, there was no distress, but Lot had distress, and as a result, God rescued righteous Lot, and if we keep reading verse 9, Peter says this, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. If he knew how to rescue Lot. And that's encouraging for us because it means he knows how to rescue us too. If he knew how to rescue Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, you can bet he knows how to rescue us out of the culture we're living in today as well. Then God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under, unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And we could talk there on that line a lot about the parallels to our culture today. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And so there's two ways God can rescue us. One is, if enough of God's people turn around, and we see this over and over again throughout Scripture, if enough of God's people really press into him and get his heart and turn back to him with, with, with repentance and distress and say, Lord, we want things to be different. If enough of God's people do that, he can actually save the entire nation, which is awesome. In the event that maybe it's just a handful. Like in Lot's case, it was just him and his family, and even they weren't that great, but there was distress. He was, he was hurting or was having Sodom. In that case, God says, there's not enough people. Remember the whole, the whole bargaining with Abraham? There wasn't enough people to save the whole city. But in that case, God said, but at least you were distressed. You called out to me, so I will save you. And so I, that's, that's hope to us. You know, on the one hand, perhaps spreading out from our midst as we press into God, more and more Christians in our culture are going to turn back to God and cry out to Him, and maybe God will save the whole nation and rescue us from the, from the highway to a bad place that we're on, okay? Or maybe, maybe not enough do, but maybe there's a remnant of us that are pushing into God. At the very least, God says, I am going to watch out for you. And that's good news to me. I want to pray for you, and I'm going to sing a final song about crying out to God I want to pray that the Lord would begin to teach us and mature us as individuals and as a body that walking in the times we're walking in, that we can walk in this place of of really crying out to God and pushing into Him and caring about what's happening and asking Him for help. Lord Jesus, we need your help. We are living in, in complex and ungodly times. Would you draw us as a church body deeper into prayer? Would you give us a heart, each individual here today, would you teach us, grow us in our devotional life, and our devotional walk with you, grow us in listening to your voice, grow us in pressing into you. Father, I pray that a, a godly distress would begin to rise up in our hearts, just like with Lot. That we would not be compromisers, we would not be ranters, we would not be apathetic, but we would be godly people distressed over where our culture is going. And as a result of that, we would turn to prayer. And we would spend time with you in prayer. Out of spending time with you in prayer, Lord, when we speak on these issues, We would speak out of a place of godly purity and wisdom and holiness with the right spirit of love. Make us mature. You're calling us here at Southland to be so much more than just show up at church and then go back to work the rest of the week. You're calling us to a level of maturity where we stand out, where we can be salt and light. Would you take us there in a place of prayer? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.